0: Didn't our, our uh, team do a great job this morning leading worship? That's fantastic. Uh, woo! It's, um, I've, I've known Danny, who was the leader of the group there since he was born, basically. And uh, just a great guy, loves heart. And it, the way God pulled him into worship ministry was just really incredible. Never took a lesson or anything. Uh, and I guess it was like five years or six years ago, uh, it was at a prayer meeting. Uh, kind of a retreat with some young people and someone got a prophecy that he was to play the guitar. In fact, that he can play the guitar. And he picked up the guitar and started playing it. And he just it just came to him like that. And uh, so it's been beautiful to see what God's been doing with him and, and uh, things like that. So he did a great job, but we'll, we'll have to do it again. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And it's really good to see all of you uh, here this morning. Glad you made the choice to come out and to be a part of this, part of this worship experience. And a teaching experience, you know. I, one other thing. I, I just this little young lady over there, whoever, whoever the mother was, thanks or father, thanks for letting her dance around. It's so beautiful. She's so free, just dancing around. And uh, you know, and that, that's great. If you got kids who are here and they want to dance. Just let, let them, you know, dance on the side. And if you want to dance with them, you know, I love that kind of freedom. Uh, that that's just with all our hearts, all our mind, all our body, all our soul, it'd be abandoned freedom worshiping God. Yes, it's just. Bless my heart to see you out there dancing like that. Uh, Our next adventure series is coming up. We're going to be talking about suffering and dealing with suffering and and, the problem of evil and sorts of things like that. Deep stuff, deep stuff. And we always like to have short-term, small groups that uh, form around these as we go deeper with the messages throughout the week. If you're open to uh, leading one of those groups, hosting one of those groups, we really would like to hear from you. So please uh, let us know about that. We'll start signing up for that stuff uh, next week, February 5th and 6th. And uh, by the way, I, I, I know I'm a little bit more yellow today than usual. We have a John Dist camera. I really am not sickly. I am not going to puke, uh, though I do look particularly bad today. Oh, it's look like bad I and mean, this is more of like... Oh, I want to give a real a big thanks to Joe Hobson uh, for helping for coming in last week. Didn't he do a great yes. job? Great message there. Appreciate it. our care team kind of found him and had him come up here. I was out out on the uh, west coast doing some ministry out there, but he did a great job uh, filling in. For that. We are doing this impromptu sort of series. We've gotten off script here and and this felt led to go in this direction. We'll be getting back to Luke here at some point. promise we still have a chapter and a half to do, uh, but we're just talking a lot about faith, the last couple messages and, and doubt and about wrestling with God, and some other things along those lines. We've uh, seen that it's okay to wrestle with God. In fact, we are descendants of the Israelites, and uh, they're called the Israelites. Jacob was renamed Israel because he struggled with God, striving with God. It's OK. To be out loud with struggles. We're not to be the people that got it all together. Uh, faith is not the opposite of doubt we've seen. Faith is not a matter of, of talking yourself into being certain of something that you're not. It's not a psychological gimmick. Faith, rather, is covenantal trust in another and the pledge of walking trustworthy with another. Trust in trustworthiness. It's a covenant term. That's what faith is. It's saying, I do at the altar. It's promising to live in a certain way, which is why faith is always visible. It's not an intellectual thing that you hide. It's something that is manifested in our life when it's real. We're going to do at least two more weeks, maybe three more weeks on this topic. Some stuff that I just feel like God wants us to be getting in on here and now. This message is going to be entitled Toppling the House of Cards for reasons that will become clear here pretty soon. Um, I, th- this particular message arises out of the, the fact that I have been asked a number of times, well several times during this series, and numerous times before this series, to kind of testify about how I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then also how I do faith. I, how, how do I, and there's a lot of questions that, that, that revolve around that. Uh, questions about how do I integrate different things into my faith? How do I hold this together? What is the center uh, how do I stay passionate about my faith when I spend so much time reading books that, that are opposed to faith and are written from a skeptical perspective? How do I maintain faith when maybe I'm being uh, critiqued or, or criticized or attacked for things that I believe? And a number of questions like that. How do you do faith? And so this is going to be sort of an autobiographical message, and in the process of kind of coming at it from that direction, I want to share a way of doing faith, a way of having faith a paradigm for faith that I find absolutely essential. And that whenever I've shared, I found a number of people at least find it to be very helpful. And in some cases, it even pretty much salvaged their their Christian faith. Um, Two words, preliminary words before we get into this. One is, uh, we always aim to shoot at the head and the heart, to teach the, the mind and to inspire the heart. But some messages are more one and and some messages are more the other. This message is definitely on the head side. So it's the kind of message that I encourage people to keep your thinking caps on, uh, to take notes if you can. I, I, I'm, I'm driving, I'm trying to give a, a paradigm f- uh, to, for us to frame things with in our mind. So it's it's more directed towards the head. Second preliminary word is this. If you're new to Woodland Hills, haven't been around here very long or just visiting, and you come from a conservative Christian background, you may start to get nervous in about 12 minutes. (laughs) Just let you know. If you've been around here for a while, you probably won't get that nervous at all. But um, uh, you probably won't be used to if you're visiting the level of kind of honest questioning that I'm going to be doing up here. Uh, And I just want to encourage you, if you fall into that camp, uh, to hang in there. Uh, I, I will try to recover Uh, by the end of the message, but you may go through a period of time there where you're going, what is this preacher doing to my head? Hang in there. We'll we'll, we'll get through it. If you walk out in the middle, I'm telling you, you're going to be screwed up for the rest of your life. So just hang in there. Hang in there. All right. Two passages to think about to kind of prime the pump as we get into this message. I'll get back to these these passages in a little bit. But notice that Jesus says in John chapter 5, I have a testimony that's weightier than John. He didn't mean it actually weighs more than John weighs. <laughs> he was saying that my, my word is more authoritative than John's word. It's more important. Now remember, Jesus also said that John is the greatest of all the prophets leading up to him. So Jesus is saying that my testimony, my teachings trump everything else. Those are still true and inspired, but not all beliefs are created equal. Not all verses are created equal. Not all prophets are created equal. There's more authority on him Than on others. Just note that. And then another point Jesus says to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Look at, there's a sense of priorities there. You're You're not seeing the forest through the trees there. You're so particular about making sure that you tithe every little spice that you have. Fine, do that. But you're neglecting the more important things. There are, there are things that are more important than others. And all this is in the Bible, but some parts of the Bible are more important than others. Just lock that in. We'll, we'll come back to this. Talking about a house of cards theology. Not all scripture, not all beliefs are created equal. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium. I thank you, God, for... young lady dancing so freely earlier in worship. I thank you for the team that was leading us in worship. God, I thank you, God, for working in our lives to bring us up to this point and to hear your word and to grow in your word and to worship you together. I thank you, Lord, for everyone who's listening through podcasts and watching on television or any other means. And I just pray, Lord God, for all of us, you'd open our minds and hearts and ears to receive your word. And Lord, teach us how to be effective on doing faith and how to be centered on doing faith and how to be effective on, on sharing our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Have you ever seen a house of cards? They're really cool things. If you see someone put one of these together, uh, all the cards lean on all the other cards. And just by, you know, just by doing that, you can build these, these sometimes very large edifices. Uh, all cards leaning against cards. I'm told that a guy from Spirit Lake, Iowa, which is just on the southern border of Minnesota, I have friends who actually have a cabin down there, we go there sometimes, but he holds the world record for the largest house of cards. It's two stories high. I know, it took him like four weeks to build it. Can you imagine if someone sneezed or something right when he was getting done? It? That would have been bad. So that's a house of cards. Now, the thing about a house of cards is that everything depends on everything else. Every card is equally important. You knock out any card and the whole thing falls to the ground. The way I was taught to do faith when I first came to Christ when I was 17, and the way many people are taught to do faith, especially in conservative Christian circles, in fact, the way many, probably a number of people in this auditorium or listening through some other means are doing faith, is something like a house of cards. I could call it a house of cards theology, a house of cards faith. Faith is, in this thing, a package deal. It's an all-or-nothing kind of a deal. Everything is equally important. Everything hangs on everything. So I was taught, for example, when I first came to Christ, that, that if any part of the Bible is not literal, if any part of it is fictional, then, then the whole thing might just be one big story. That's not true. If, if the snake talking in the Garden of Eden, if, if that's not literal, well, then how do you know that Jesus rising from the dead was literal? Everything hangs or falls together. Everything's equally important, and it's all got to be literal. And I was taught, many of us were taught, that if, if, if there's one error in the Bible well, then the whole thing could be an error. like so if there's one crack in the dam, the whole thing is going to burst apart. If there's one inaccuracy, historical or scientific inaccuracy, well, then the whole thing could be inaccurate. If there's one contradiction, then the whole thing could be a book of lies. House of Cards theology, because your faith is, is only one error, one inaccuracy, one discovery away from all falling to the ground. Now, now here's, here's the problem with that model of faith. Ancient authors frequently made points by telling non-literal stories, as they do today. Uh, And really, there's no reason why God would be prohibited from using a non-literal genre, if you think about it. But ancient authors frequently did that, and most scholars agree that some of the stories in the Old Testament are meant to be taken non-literally. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about ancient people is that they didn't have the kind of iron-clad genre literary distinctions that we have today. Literal or non-literal. Sometimes they fused the, the, the two together. So, for example, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 19, you'll find a literal history of Israel, or the kings of Israel there, a, a brief history, but it's also an allegory. It's an allegory about a lion and, and, and her cubs. Uh, so is it literal or is it, is it not literal? It doesn't really pan out that way. And so it is for a, a lot of stuff in the Bible. But if you have a house of cards theology where it's all got to be literal or it's all just one big fictional story, you could be set up for a major crash. Your house could come tumbling down. Here's another problem. And here's where some folks might get a little bit nervous. But I just have to be really honest. I mean, we don't get anywhere if we're not ruthlessly honest. As I read the Bible, I think it's undeniable that it's got some inconsistencies. There are things that just don't match up. I mentioned two weeks ago where I I came to my pastor as a young Christian uh, distraught because I discovered that, that the order of events in the Gospels aren't aligned with one another and the wording is different. Some of the details is different. I was like, what is up with this? Uh, how is this to be God's word? And you find that kind of thing. I'm sorry, but you find it quite a bit in the Bible. I have one, one, one more example. Um, you find David counted uh, the number of soldiers that he has. wasn't supposed to, but he did. And how many men did he count? What well, it says in 2 Samuel? He counted 500,000. It says in 1 Chronicles, he counted 470,000. Now, nothing could bother me less than that. <laughs> now... But back then, we've got a 30,000 discrepancy, and every detail is supposed to be exactly right. Now I just say, well, they were rounding it up, one rounded it up, one rounded it down, who knows? Uh, you know, but, but, but if everything has got to be perfect, then, then, then this, is, this is a potential catastrophe. A card has just got knocked out of place. In fact, you'll find that as you read the Bible, whenever they have parallel accounts with numbers in it, about a third of the time, the numbers don't match up. And sometimes there's wide differences between them. What are we going to do with that? Here's another problem. I apologize if I'm making you nervous, but let's just deal with this. (laughs) Got to do it. As I read the Bible, it just does not reflect the science of today. It's not accurate by modern scientific standards. (laughs) Um, I I remember my first year as a Christian just getting so irritated when someone pointed out to me, and I didn't notice this before, but, but, but you have in the Genesis account, the sun is created on the fourth day, which would be wonderful, except you've already had four days, and, and the, the light was created on the first day. How do you get light before there's a sun, before there's a moon, before there's a star? How do you even get days before you have a sun uh, to rotate around? I, I, how, how does that work? Now, I'm sure someone has an answer, but it bugged me a lot. And then as I began to, my first year in college, began to just kind of look at what's really in the Bible, um, I found that there's a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to reflect modern science. For example, here's stuff that is in the Bible. If you want the verses that go along with this, uh, Paul, Eddie, and I have a book called Across the Spectrum, and we look at a bunch of different issues, and one of the issues is about the science of the Bible, and we have all these verses here. But right now, just hear this. It, this is the, in the Bible. The earth is surrounded by water. It's this piece of land surrounded by water on all sides. And it's held up by pillars. We take pillars now, we just think that it's talking poetry. But ancient people actually believed that there are pillars that held up this plot of land on the water. In fact, we, have, we have pictures of this. Not photographs, of course, but drawings. People in the ancient years made drawings of the world, and it's held up by pillars. And when the pillars shake, that's how you get earthquakes. And the sky is a hard dome held up by pillars, and that support water. Uh, they, th- they, they thought the sky was just this hard thing It had to be hard because it holds up a bunch of water You even get that in Genesis 1 It says God made a firmament And the thing means a solid thing And he put the firmament in the midst of the water And he divided the water above from the water below So it's like he lifts up this water on this cookie sheet And, and, and it's hard because it holds up all that water So how does, how does it rain? Well, there's windows There's windows in the sky And they get opened And that's how the rain comes down And we read verses about opening the windows of heaven And we think it's just poetry But they really believe that How else is it supposed to get through that hard sky? Job says at one point, uh, uh, the Lord makes the sky hard as molten lava. Uh, Hard as molten lava. That's the hardest thing they knew. And it had to be hard because it's holding up all that water. And and there's pillars that hold up that dome. What holds up the pillars, no one could quite figure out. But that's as far as they got. And then there's these threatening monsters in, in the surrounding seas. Leviathan and Rahab. And all ancient people believed in these things. It was how they personified forces of evil. Uh, this is the ancient view of, uh, th- that we find reflected in the Bible. And it's not scientifically accurate, not according to modern science. Now, again, nothing could bother me less than this now, but back then it really bothered me because I was set up with a house of cards theology that said that this is all supposed to ref- be, be, be harmonizable with uh, modern scientific truth. It's really not surprising, is it, that God speaks the science and the language of the day. How else is he supposed to speak to these people? And we just got to cut them some slack. If God shows up in the ancient world and starts talking in terms of modern science, praise me because of the second law of thermodynamics or because of you know non-equilibrium theory and emergent property theory and chaos theory and the butterfly effect and the superposition of quantum particles, the people are not going to know what he's talking about. Most of you don't even know what I was talking about. Uh, it's, it's, It's not supposed to do that. But it does raise a problem if you have a house of cards theology. If you have a house of cards theology and you assume the Bible is supposed to be scientifically accurate and 100% consistent and supposed to you know, be harmonizable in all these areas, you're setting yourself up potentially for a major crash. That house of cards theology, that house of cards faith makes you so vulnerable. Uh, it may be that 100 years ago you could, if you wanted to, get by throughout most of your life without having to confront somebody or read some book that didn't seriously challenge that kind of faith. If you wanted to, you know, you could, you could avoid uh, living next to her, rubbing shoulders with or getting into deep conversations with people who would challenge some of this. But I submit to you, in this day and age, in our information age, in our pluralistic culture, uh, you've got to work really hard to not have that faith come tumbling down to the ground. You've got to make sure that you don't read broadly and, and, and you don't have deep relationships with people who don't share your faith. Because uh, if you do, it's just a matter of time before that faith will become crumbling down to the ground. It took me less than one semester, and the house came tumbling down. And I wanted to believe. I seriously wanted to believe. My heart was towards excuse me. My heart was towards Jesus, but I just could not, with integrity, believe that the, the, all the Bible is literal. I couldn't do that any longer. I couldn't deny that there were discrepancies at least by certain standards, things that count as discrepancies. I couldn't deny that it's not scientific in the modern sense of the term. My house of cards came tumbling down. And this happens to a lot of people. It's one of the main reasons why our retention rate of Christian kids who go to secular universities is so poor. Uh, About one out of five comes out of there still being a uh, church-going, Bible-believing Christian. Uh, They just lose their faith all over. Because we send them with a house of cards theology that is very easy to dismantle in the classroom. It's one of the major reasons, I think, why thoughtful people today, many of them, can't seriously entertain embracing the Christian faith. And they may have a heart that would really love to buy into the kingdom, but if the price of entrance, of joining your kingdom club, is that you have to accept everything as literal and deny that there's any inconsistencies and and, and pretend that the Bible is scientific, they just say with integrity, I can't do that can't do that. And it's tragic, because there are people who then are consigned to living a pointless, meaningless life, not knowing what it's all about, because they can't accept that the earth is 10,000 years old. And it's just tragic. It's just tragic. The house of cards, package deal, model of faith is just not tenable today. Uh, It doesn't allow for any process. It doesn't allow for for growth and, and for some questioning and for some free thinking. And and, and for grappling with things, it's an all-or-nothing sort of approach. It just doesn't fly today. And I'll say in a second, I I also don't think it's biblical. But maybe you're you're out there saying, well, then what's the alternative? In fact, it may be that you have been holding to something like a house of cards kind of theology, and I just knocked a card out, and you're wondering why you came to church today, or why you're listening to the podcast. I come to get my faith strengthened, thank you very and you're sitting here dismantling it. What kind of a preacher are you for crying out loud? Hang on, hang on, we'll recover. I, I slowly, uh, I slowly crept back. Uh, it took a while, but I slowly crept back into the faith. Obviously, because otherwise I wouldn't be up here talking to you. I, 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 I got my faith mojo back. But when I did, and, and finally landed with both feet on the ground, and it was a, a, a quite a long process, the way I did faith was very different from the House of Cards model of faith. It was more viable, but I think it was also more biblical. And a major aspect of the kind of faith I now held was that I didn't treat all beliefs as equal. A major component is that I made a difference between beliefs that are really, really important and those that are less important. Remember what Jesus said, my my word is weightier than, more authoritative than that of John. And he, he, he criticizes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because they don't have a sense of proportion. They treat, they treat little details about tithing as though they were as important as carrying out justice and mercy and being faithful. Rather than a house of cards model of faith, I want to recommend to you, and this is what I live in now, a Christ-centered paradigm for faith. Think about faith, not as a house of cards, but in terms of concentric circles. And Christ is at the center. And each, each circle going out represents a, a category of beliefs that is slightly less or maybe even much less important than the previous one. Kind of concentric circles. For me, and this is the faith that I advocate as viable and Biblical... Everything is centered on Jesus Christ. Everything is based on Jesus Christ. Everything depends on Jesus Christ and only on Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend on all the particular things that I believe about this, that, or the other thing. All my faith is directed towards Him. Because remember, biblically speaking, faith is not intellectual assent. Faith is a pledge of trust and trustworthiness. And you don't do that with a belief, a proposition. You do that with a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. So in that sense... Jesus Christ is the total content of my faith. Now maybe you'll ask the question, and it's a perfectly legitimate question, well, why do you choose to put your faith in Jesus rather than Buddha or Muhammad or the Upanishads or, 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 or Hinduism or Shintoism or some other religion? And that is the exact right question to ask. That's the all-important question. That's, that's the question Jesus is getting at when he says, who do you say that I am? And If you're going to spend any time thinking deeply and doing research on any question, do it on that one. Everything hangs on that. Why follow Jesus? Uh, I have—I I can't get into it now, but I, I have, uh, with, with Paul Eddy, uh, written some some stuff on this about why I believe in Jesus and other alternative explanations for who Jesus is and why I think the Gospels are generally trustworthy and things of that sort. Uh, but for me, to summarize it, I—I I believe I have. Very compelling historical reasons and very compelling philosophical reasons and very compelling intuitive reasons and very compelling existential reasons for believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Revealer of God, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I've got very good compelling reasons for that. Now, am I certain of that in the sense of a mathematical certainty or a logical deduction? No, but we're not certain of anything like that. But I've gotten to the point where I say I have more reasons to think this is true than false the point where I'm willing to say I do. I'm willing to throw my hat in the ring. I'm willing to say I'm going to live this way. I'm I'm willing to say I'm going to pursue a relationship with him. I'm willing to say I'm going to base my life on this. Jesus is the center of everything for me in this faith. Everything depends on him. He's my center. He's my source, the source of my esteem, the source of my life, the source of my security, the source of my my core joy, the source of my happiness, the source of my, my, my vision for living. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the wisdom of God, the Word of God. He's God incarnate, Savior of the world. The reason why I get up in the morning, the reason why I live the highest priority of every day, the goal of every day is Jesus Christ and nothing but Jesus Christ. In fact, I think to think otherwise is idolatrous. Get all of your life worth, significance, and security from Jesus Christ. And really, really, I feel like that's all I need. And we haven't even talked about Scripture and particular doctrines yet. But if I know what God looks like based on Jesus Christ, and I know what He thinks of me based on Jesus Christ... I know what he thinks about you based on Jesus Christ. Well, that's about 99% of the game right there. <laughs> you know, if, if God looks like the kind of God who would die for me on a cross, and if he thinks I'm worth dying for, and he thinks you're worth dying for, and then the goal of life is to imitate that, well, that pretty much covers it. You see, that, that, that's the center, living in love, as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. I've got enough to live on just with that. I could be wrong about everything else. And I'm good. I'm good. Because I know Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ. Not all beliefs are created equal. Beliefs are important, but, but nothing, nothing, nothing should be allowed to complete, compete with this one. Know why you hold to this one belief and then put all your eggs in that basket. And the belief is that Jesus Christ reveals who God is. He's the Savior of the world, the Son of God. God manifested on earth. All my life and worth needs to come from him. End of story. Now, see, that is a viable kind of faith because I don't now need to be anal about all the details out there. Uh, worrying about one particular discovery, going to topple my house of, of, of cards down. I don't. No, it's all based on this. It's more viable, but I submit to you it's also far more biblical. This is how the Bible thinks about faith. Ask yourself this question. When Jesus went around inviting people to follow him, how many preliminary theological questions did he ask them? None. Zero. He didn't have them fill out a form or do a little background check or a theological inquisition before they could sign up and become part of the kingdom and follow him. He just said, follow me. If you wanted to follow him, you followed him. Now, I'm sure many times Jesus, the Son of God, was sitting there thinking this person's theology is all screwed up. Uh, it's, it, there's a lot of things we've got to correct here. But correcting that theology isn't the precondition for getting in the kingdom. No, no, no. You get in the kingdom, and that's what starts to correct the theology, you see. You find a lot of theology in the New Testament, and I love every verse of it. But none of it is given as a precondition for getting into the kingdom. The only condition for getting in the kingdom is, will you follow Jesus? Will, will you turn from your self-centered way of living, which is called repentance, and now submit to him, make him Lord of your life? To follow Jesus, you just start to follow Jesus. It's so tragic when we put all these hurdles for people to jump over in order to just get into kingdom life. Remember, salvation in the kingdom. Salvation is not some legality that we get—we we, we, we sort of activate with a formula in our head. Salvation is the relationship that's based on faith because faith is trust and trustworthiness. That's our saving faith relationship. And we have that with Jesus Christ. You can't have that with a particular doctrine. You can't have this, I'm in love with this belief of mine. Well, actually, you can have that, and it's called idolatry. Carl really Barton said this. I love this. And it's also very sobering. He said, The deepest crevice of hell is reserved for theologians who love their theology more than Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're supposed to be married to Jesus, not all of our philosophizing and theologizing about Jesus. He's the center, the only one we get our life from. Okay, so at the center of everything is Jesus all depends on him. Now, to understand who Jesus is, is to understand the story he's a part of. Jesus doesn't just plop out of heaven. No, there's a long story that leads up to him and a, long, and, and a shorter story, but that follows him. And his identity is wrapped up with that story. That's the story of the Bible. Jesus culminates the story of the Bible. God creating the world and raising up Israel and so on and so on. Jesus fulfills the story of the Bible. He's, he's the point of the story of the Bible. He says, all scripture points to me. In fact, Jesus himself... Clearly, he believes in the Bible. He, he endorses the Old Testament as the Word of God, and he talks about how the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, endorsing, uh, pre-endorsing the New Testament. And since I have every reason to believe he's the Son of God, I don't think he's wrong about that. So now, all of my reasons for believing in Jesus as the Son of God, historical, philosophical, existential, intuitive, and so on, all those reasons now become reasons for me to accept Scripture as the Word of God. And so, outside the ring of the center is the ring of Scripture, accepting Scripture as the Word of God. Now, notice this, however. That doesn't settle any issue about how I interpret it, what I take literal or not literal, how I think it does or does not line up with some scientific claim or some historical claim or anything of the sort. It just means that I will, I, I, I live to submit myself to this Word. But to be honest with you, once I do that, I'm not bothered by all those other kind of questions anymore. Because my reasons for believing the Bible isn't that it conforms to someone's idea about what a perfect book should look like. My reasons for believing it isn't because I, I can prove that it lines up with, uh, with, with, with all of science or, or history, as some historian says it is, or that everything is consistent. Those aren't my reasons for believing it. And so those reasons couldn't possibly take away my faith in it. My reasons for believing it are that jesus it's, it's, it's part of Jesus' identity. And so when I accept Jesus, I accept the story that comes with him. He endorses the story. Now, many people say things like this. Well, I believe in the Bible, and therefore I believe in Jesus. And I submit to you that that is putting the cart before the horse. At least consider looking at it a different way. See, if you believe in Jesus because you believe in the Bible, that makes the Bible the fundamental thing, not Jesus. And now you've got to leverage everything on the Bible. That's what gets that house of cards theology going when, when you approach things that way when everything is leveraged on the Bible, then Christianity can become a religion that's centered on a book rather than a relationship that's centered on a person. It becomes a religion that's centered on a book rather than a relationship that's centered on a, on a person. And that's why, because everything is leveraged on this book, now issues of interpretation and all that get, 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 get become very, very, very important. Salvation itself hangs on how you interpret that. Now that that characterizes Islam. But it should not characterize the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. Because at the center of our faith is not a book. At the center of our faith is, is a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And in accepting him, well, the story and the inspired book come with him. It's a little bit like this. When I married my lovely, gorgeous wife, Shelly, 32 years ago, I, 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 I married into and learned, and I'm still learning, her story. Her family history. To to understand her, you gotta you know she didn't just plop down from heaven. Though there are days where I think that way, honey. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) and it's been bliss ever since. Of course, no. But see, you you uh, when you when I married her, I I married into a story, a family history. And to understand her, I need to understand the history. Okay, she she she's part of that, and that's part of her. But I didn't marry her family story. Censor, censor, censor. I, I, I married her, and the story came. <laughs> the story came. I just got points, now. I just lost points. <laughs> See, I have a relationship with her, not her family history, but the family history comes, comes with her. So also, we don't marry the Bible. No, we marry Jesus Christ, and in, to know Jesus, we know the Bible. But it's important to keep that sense of priority. See, that's why now you once you get that reframe, you're no longer in this house of cards theology. You just don't need to get anal about every little particular discrepancy or historical claim or whatever. Um you, you don't your faith doesn't need to ride on that any more than I would worry about finding some discrepancy in, in Shelley's genealogy. It's so tragic that people... Dan Barker, a friend of mine who was an atheist, and I debate him at universities once in a while, he he talks in his book, uh, Losing Faith in Faith. He talks about how he lost his faith. And it was all the kind of reasons that I gave you. Oh, I found a scientific inaccuracy, a historical claim that didn't match up, uh, a contradiction over here. It's so tragic. And so he he just abandons all of his faith. That would be like me divorcing my wife because I found a contradiction in her genealogies. How much sense does that make? Honey, It's over. I can't make things line up in your genealogy. (laughs) That's nuts. It's nuts. That's like we're tithing about mint and cumin while you're neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness in the law. You no longer have a house of cards theology. So at the center is Jesus. Everything depends on Jesus. He's the source of our life and the only source of our life. Just outside of that is Scripture. Now, just outside of that, are, I, I would put core core Christian doctrines. These are the doctrines of, of the, the ecumenical confessions, the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, things that Christians have always believed. It expresses the way we've always interpreted the Bible, core beliefs. Uh, God is the creator of the earth. He's the governor of the, of the earth. We believe in providence. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the church universal, the coming kingdom of God, the judgment, and things of those sort. Those things are very important because they structure this story. The story doesn't make sense without those core doctrines. But as important as they are, we don't get life from being right about those. No, we get our life from Jesus Christ. In the process of accepting Jesus, we accept Scripture, and this is the way we've always interpreted Scripture. They're important, but don't get life from those. These are the beliefs that Christians have always agreed on. And just outside of that ring is a fourth ring, which I could call maybe theological opinions. And these are beliefs that Christians have often disagreed on. Most of the time, these are the beliefs, and they, they, they still can be very important. I'm not saying these are unimportant. I think they, they, a lot of things can, can, can be affected by what you believe about these things. But usually, these are the ways people interpret the core doctrines. So, for example, everyone has always confessed that God is, is, is providential. He's sovereign. He governs the world. Okay, so that's part of the core doctrine. But in working it out, well, we do it in different ways. Some of us, moi, for example, put a lot of emphasis on free will, angelic free will, and human free will. Other people say, no, God controls every detail and predestines everything. And Christians have always disagreed about that kind of stuff. And we disagreed about how to baptize, and we disagree about soteriology and pneumatology and ecclesiology and eschatology and all the other ologies. And those things can be important. I think it affects how you view God and do life, depending on how you interpret those things. I like to write books on that, and let's talk about that, and let's debate that. But, but... But let's realize that that's out there. It's not the center. And so you could change, and you should be able to change your opinion about that stuff and let go of that. I find the longer I go, the the, the less certain I am about any of the stuff out there. But the more tightly I cling to the center. And that's also why, you know, you don't need to get angry when someone disagrees with you. Even about a core doctrine. Uh, or, or even about Scripture, you don't need to just get angry about that and huffy-puffy huffy, and think that you're all of a sudden God's lawyer or something and, and you have to try the case. No, see, that's what loops us out of living in love. That If you get angry because someone challenged your belief, whether it's a theological belief or a political belief or whatever, if your emotion is anger, that can be an indication that you're getting some of your life from being right about that or at least believing that you're right about that. And whenever we're getting life, our sense of worth, our sense of significance, our sense of being special from the particulars of what we believe, well then of course when someone criticizes it, you're going to get hot and bothered because they're going after one of your idols. But folks, and then you can't live in love as Christ loved us and gave life for us. Get all your worth and significance from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. There are important beliefs. Let's hold to them. There are common confessions. We embrace them, passionate about them, but don't get life from them. And now you can, in a loving, calm way, talk about people and disagree with people. And you might even learn a thing or two. That happens once in a while once you're no longer living in fear of being proven wrong because these things are no longer idols for you and you're no longer living in a house of cards theology. Now, this was a message that was geared towards our head mainly. It's a way of framing things in your life, and I really encourage you to try that on. Making Christ the center of Scripture, core doctrines, and then theological opinions. Next week, we'll talk more about heart issues, about how faith can uh, help us uh, get strength to move on into the future, even when you're in a state of despair. And we'll talk about what do you trust God for? One of the most, I think, misunderstood concepts out there. What are you trusting God for? But right now, I want to close in prayer, that we lock in this Christ-centered paradigm of faith. As I do so, I want to encourage our prayer teams to come up. And if you have any prayer, any need, uh, any struggle that you're going through, I encourage you to come up and spend some time with these folks uh, and, and pray with them. That's what they're here for. Father, I thank you for making Jesus Christ the center. Lord, I pray that everybody listening to this, in this auditorium, on television, any other means, Lord, that we would, in fact, get all of our life, our worth, our significance, our value, our security, from knowing that you love us the way you've proven yourself on Calvary. You love us with a self-sacrificial kind of love. And Lord, I just pray that living that out, accepting that for ourselves and applying it to every single person without exception that we come upon, I pray, Lord, that that be the center of our life. In one sense, that's all we need, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that that we drink deeply from that well and we passionately hold other beliefs that are important, but Lord, help us never to get life from them. You alone are our Lord. You alone are our God. You alone, not our rightness. You are the source of our everything, our all in all. In Jesus name we pray and all of God's kingdom people said Amen, Amen. God bless you guys love you go and build the kingdom